Good morning. Lord, send me. There's a, a song by that title that we sometimes sing. It's not in the book, or Carl would have let it uh, today, but there's a song called Lord, Send Me. And if you can read those words on the screen, we need to mean the songs that we sing. Ephesians 5 and verse 19 says that we are to edify and give thanks to the Lord through our singing. Colossians 3 And verse 16 says that we are to admonish and teach with our singing. So the words that we're singing to God and worship to God, we need to mean those words. We have to mean the things that we sing. Uh, It's important as we read these words on the screen that we mean these words as well. Lord, send me. Here am I. Send me. As Christians, we've been given this great gift. It's the grace of God. It's this free gift who knew our condition. He knew what we needed before we even needed it. He knew that we would need a Savior before the foundation of the world. He knew what it would cost. And he sent his son to be convicted and killed in our place, even though he was sinless, even though he was innocent. He loved us so much that he did that. And so therefore we love him. And if we love him, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So those commandments obviously apply to salvation, to baptism, but also in addition to that as a condition of the continued reception of God's grace, we have been given a great mission. It's the final mission that Jesus gave us right before he ascended into heaven. In Matthew 28, in the final verses of the gospel according to Matthew, he says to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're to teach and we're to baptize. And Mark 16, 15 through 16, recounts the same thing. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. So we're to go, we're to teach, and we're to baptize. That's the mission that we've been given. Those are our marching orders. And in Isaiah 6 and verse 8, we see in this powerful verse the attitude of Isaiah to a similar powerful mission that he was given. God has asked, who am I going to send to Israel? Who is going to speak on behalf of God? And his powerful response is, here am I, send me. So in this song that's on the screen, you see there is much to do, there's work on every hand. Hark the cry for help comes ringing through the land. Jesus calls for reapers, I must active be. What will thou, O master, here am I, send me? There's a plaintive cry of mourning, souls distressed, and the cry of hearts who seek but find no rest. These should have my love and tender sympathy, ready at thy bidding, here am I, Lord, send me. There are hungering souls who cry aloud for bread, with the bread of life they're longing to be fed. Shall they starve and famish while a feast is free? I must be more faithful, here am I, send me. There are souls who linger on the brink of woe. Lord, I must not, cannot, bear to let them go. 
Let me go and tell them, brother, turn and flee. Master, I would save them. Here am I, send me. And this powerful song, and then in the refrain, it's just repeating that idea, here am I, send me. The first thing that we have to do, if we're willing to be sent, is we have to recognize the need. In the song, The Desperate Condition of Mankind and of the Lost, is stated. And I'm convinced that Jesus is the solution to the world's problems. The world has all sorts of problems. We see them in our our government. We see them in our schools. We see them in our society, crime, all of the different things that are going on in the world and have been going on forever. It's not something new. I saw an Assyrian tablet recently that had been translated and it said it was it was the newer the older generation saying how bad the the new generation is. I don't know if that's an accurate translation of that tablet, but the idea there is true. Bad things are always going on like this. And the answer to all of those things, the answer to the world's problems and the darkness and those who are groping around in the darkness trying to find meaning The answer is Jesus. But so often that's not what people find. But people will find something to hang on to and something to believe in. You know, I was thinking about this. Al Gore, back in 2006, he released this movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And so many people jumped on board this idea of we've got to stop climate change and we've got to uh, do all this good for the environment. Now, I'm not opposed to doing good for the environment. I think, in fact, that was kind of God's first mission he gave to man. He, he set Adam over the, the garden. We're, we're to be good stewards of what God has given us. But people buy into this, and they get on that train. And the reason they do is because they want to believe in something and stand for something that's bigger than them. And also, something that they can't really be held accountable for. I mean, if... If that's your main mission is climate change, you, one individual, is not going to have the impact on that that's needed for any kind of real change. And so you can be a part of that, that movement, but you don't really have any real impact in it. So you're not held accountable. You never feel really bad, but you're part of something bigger than yourself. The same is true now. It just goes through different trends. Right now, the biggest trend, I would say, is this LGBTQ plus movement. They're a well-organized movement and ideology, and people see that they've won certain victories in court. And because of that added publicity, it's become a trend in our society. I was looking at the stats. I, I had preached on this a long time ago and looked at statistics, and I was somewhat shocked at the new statistics that are out on this topic. In 2021, the CDC did a study of 17,508 students in 152 schools nationwide, and it found that 26% of high school students, 26%, identify as some form of LGBTQ+. Sorry for getting the letters wrong. 26%, that's more than one in four, are identifying with that movement. It doesn't mean, and if you read the study, it doesn't mean that 26% are saying that they're homosexuals. 
is that they're saying that they're identifying with the movement. And in fact, the, the list on there, the statistic in that study from just a couple of years ago, it is, is that 3% are actually identifying as homosexual, 3%. That's only slightly elevated from what it was in the 90s. It used to be just a, just a bit lower than 2%. But it's a huge change in the way people are viewing that. Now, one in four are viewing that as this alternative lifestyle that's okay. And they're identifying with it. It shows how many people are open to exploring these ideas because they want to be a part of something bigger and a part of this cultural movement. There's no question that people need to be a part of something. They want, they desire to be a something, part of something bigger than themselves. But that something needs to be Jesus. It needs to be the gospel. In verse 1, it says, Hark, the cry for help comes ringing through the land. In verse 2, there's a plaintive cry of mourning souls distressed and the cry of hearts who seek but find no rest. In verse 3, there are hungering souls who cry aloud for bread. With the bread of life, they're longing to be fed. You see, in the song, it's saying, look at all the people that are desperately seeking something. And they don't know what it is. It's the gospel, the gospel of Christ. That's what they need. And then in verse 4, the author of the song talks about people's dangerous condition, and they're not even aware of it. They're so close to the edge of the cliff, and they don't even know. It's our responsibility. We've got to see the need. There's a tremendous need for the gospel. Every day, everyone you see is in need of the gospel. I've wanted to write a tract or an article called, I've been thinking about this. I want it to be called, uh, To Whom It Concerns. Because you write, if you're, if you're going to write to a company, let's say you get angry with a company or whatever it is, and you want to direct that to somebody. You don't know who it's going to end up with. You write to whom it may concern. But we have a message that concerns everybody. So I want to write a track that says to whom it concerns. And, and so I don't know you, but I know what you need. You need the gospel of Christ. That's what the world needs. In Matthew 9, 37 through 38, he said to the disciples, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers, the workers, are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. I see this everywhere we go. When we were in Kansas, we see it. You know, they desperately need somebody to go there and preach and teach and help work there if that church is going to grow. The same is true here. The church is very needed in this area. And you need someone to come and work with you, and hopefully God will provide that. There's such a need all over the world. I see it all the time. There's a shortage of preachers. There's a shortage of workers in the church. So the first thing we have to do is we have to see that need. The second thing is that we have to have the tools necessary. We have to have the right stuff. So we recognize the need, now we have to have the right stuff. And the text we're using as a home base in Isaiah 6, back up from the verse that Griffin read, 
to verse 1. And let's start reading there. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. So before God asked for someone to sin, and he said, Here am I, send me. He realizes his condition. He is before God, the holy. And he realizes that he is a sinful man. He has no right to be there with God because he has unclean lips. And so the seraphim takes a coal and touches it to his mouth to purify him. Now, this is a vision, and I don't think that he was injured in, in this going on. You don't see him mumbling, and you know, he's able to speak in the next verse. He's like, Remember my Lord for me. He doesn't do that. So he's able to, to talk. But we see that he recognized that he needed to be in a different condition in order to be the spokesperson for God. He recognizes that. Now, in the same way, you cannot take on the mission that God has given us until we are in Christ and we are prepared to do so. So we do that through obeying the gospel. And I think most here today know this. I'm not going to linger on it long, but it's vitally important that we be in Christ before we take on the mission of Christ and can bring others to him. After we, in, we are in Christ, we have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to be able to teach someone else about the hope that is innocent, in, in us. Recently, someone contacted us at House to House through, through email, and they said they wanted to be assigned to someone to go out and preach the gospel. And we questioned her a little bit about that. And she said, well, God has laid it on my heart that I need to go out and teach the gospel to others. I need to be paired up with somebody to do that. And so we asked her, we said, what's the gospel? And she said, oh, the gospel is the good news. Okay. Right. What's the good news? Oh, the good news is the gospel. Right. A little circular reasoning here. So what are you going to teach people? I'm going to teach them the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the fact that because Jesus came, we can now be reconciled to God even though we are sinful. That's the good news. And so obviously she needed more study. She needed to understand more before she could go out and teach others. We have to be prepared. 1 Peter 3.15 says we're to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that is in us. If we are saved, then we know how we got saved. And we know how and should study to do this better, but we should know how to tell someone how we're saved. It's a condition 
of being saved, that we're able to go out and teach others. We're so thankful to God who gave us this great gift that we should be able to tell others we're obligated to do so. So we have to have the right stuff. Third, we have to go about doing the right things. Now I put this meme up here on on the the thing to talk about the Tower of Babel uh, because my kids like this and it's my favorite uh, favorite meme. But the idea here is to communicate that we have to focus on the right things. It's possible to work on the wrong things, wouldn't you agree? We see this certainly in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And we also think of our dear brother, the Apostle Paul. When we think of Paul, what comes to mind is the amazing work that he did, the missionary journeys that he did, the persecutions that he constantly faced, being in prison, still singing, still converting people everywhere he went. We think of the great work that the Apostle Paul did. We think of his writing, how he communicates to us all these great truths through the Holy Spirit. But we also, when we're introduced to Paul at the end of Acts 7, it's at the stoning of Stephen. When he's consenting to that horrible act where the first martyr mentioned in the New Testament for the cause of Christ is being stoned. And he saw Paul standing there with the coats of those who were stoning him at his feet. And he's consenting to his death. Where in Acts 26, 9 through 11, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul felt this deeply in himself, that he had done these things contrary to the cause of Christ before he became a Christian, before he converted. Was Paul sincere when he was doing those things? Did he think he was doing the work of God? He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And there are so many in the world who are sincere in what they are doing, but they are sincerely wrong. We have to teach them. Certainly people in denominations are guilty of this, but it's easy for us to focus on that. It's easy to, to cast that off of that burden off of us and say, well, yeah, people in denominations, they're, they're doing the wrong things. They're teaching the wrong things, the wrong doctrines. They're worshiping incorrectly. There are so many things they need uh, to, to correct. But we also have to keep focused on our mission and on us. We have to be servants of God and be willing to say, Lord, send me. God may say, well, I'm going to send you someplace dangerous. Lord, send me. Say, well, maybe far away. Lord, send me. You may have to go hungry. Never mind, I'm out. No, Lord, send me. You're going to be tired. You're going to be hurt. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. 
Lord, send me. And we have to concentrate on the right things. Now, I don't want you to mistake me when I say this, but oftentimes we concentrate on programs, things, classes, that kind of thing for the church. And those are all good things to do. We should do those things. We should edify and build each other up. We should have fellowship meals because it edifies and, and builds us up and it has us eating together and talking together and, and it's a wonderful thing. But if that's all we're concentrating on are the programs of the church, Rob Whittaker calls this keeping the aquarium instead of fishing for men. And eventually the aquarium, all the fish are going to die out if you're not bringing in new fish. We have to do evangelism. As I already said, the answer to the world's problems is Jesus. You want to change the way the government's going? You want to change the way the schools? It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to those problems. But the answer to problems in the church is evangelism. Doing evangelism cures many of the diseases that are existent in the church. When we focus on the mission that God gave us and we buy into that bigger purpose that he has given us, it's going to solve so many problems that seem petty in comparison to the problems of the world. We have to focus on the right things. Then we have to have the right motivations. In Acts chapter 5, two liars die. My dad came up with that little rhyme, and I've never forgotten it. He taught me that in high school class when I was a little kid, and I've always remembered it. That's my favorite chapter of Acts because of that. But it's a sad story with Ananias and Sapphira. They see the good work there at the end of chapter 4. Barnabas has sold a piece of land. This is where we're introduced to Barnabas. And he sold a piece of land and he's given it all and laid it at the apostles' feet to be distributed by the church to help the poor, the needy, the widows, the orphans. And Barnabas gets all these accolades for it. He even gets a cool nickname that means uh, man of consolation or, or one encourager. And Ananias and Sapphira see all this praise that Barnabas is getting. And they say, we'd like a cool nickname too. We would like to get praise, too. We own a piece of land as well. Let's go sell it and give some of the money to the church. They're okay. That's okay up to that point. The problem is they said they gave all the money to the church because they wanted the same kind of praise that Barnabas was getting. Now, Barnabas didn't give that money for the praise and for the neat nickname. He gave it because he wanted to help. But the motivations of Ananias and Sapphira are clear. And he comes, and they question him about it, and he says, yes, and this is all the money. And he's struck dead. And I kind of feel like this was planned. You know, Sapphira is going to come later, and everybody's going to be, you know, happy about it from Ananias, and, and then she's going to come in and swoop in and get this, this praise and this glory. Uh, and I've got to feel like when she entered the room and it's icy cold in there and nobody's praising her and everybody's scared I mean I I try to place myself in that in that crowd and then they're questioning her about it and she lies I mean 
Sometimes you got to just realize if they're questioning you about it, something that specific, you're caught, you know. But she doesn't realize it in time. She lies and says, yes, that was all the money. And she is also struck dead. In 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 15, it says, we having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you for all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many rebound to the glory of God. When we do things for God, it's not for our glory. It's to show the glory of God, to show how wonderful God is, how wonderful salvation is, and that hope that we have of heaven and how exciting that is when we're in a fallen world that's so full of perversion. And there's several verses here that I'll just read one after the other. But Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. Luke 12, 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that also will he reap. We have to come to God with the proper heart, with the right motivations, not for any glory that that we might get, any praise that we might get, but to bring glory and praise to God. And then finally, we've got to have the right reaction to this. There are several reactions when God told people to go that they have in the Bible. The most obvious is, is Jonah, I think. God told him to go, and he said, nope, not doing that. He turned around and ran the opposite direction. Supposed to go over by land, he's like, I'm going to go by sea the other way. Didn't work out well for Jonah. When God gives you a mission, you should not say no. But I find it interesting that the reaction of Moses, and I think this is more often than not the kind of reaction that we have uh, to this mission. Just look in Exodus 3. It's in Exodus 3 and 4. We'll just cover this very quickly, but here we see the same reaction in verse 4. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4. God is speaking to him. He says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Well, he got the first part of that right. Same as Isaiah. Here am I. And then what happens? Well, God sends him on a mission. That's verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, and thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I'm sending you on a mission. And he said, here I am, Lord, send me. Nope, that's not what he says. And he said, no, nope, that's not what he says. He starts making excuses. And this goes on for a while. In... Verse 11, And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh? Oh, so humble. Uh, Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. There's an excuse. He says, I'm not worthy. In verse 13, he says, Well, I don't even know what name to give them. You know, which God sent you. I don't, I don't know what to tell them. 
you don't, you, know, you don't really have a name that I can say. And God answers that, just like he answered the previous excuse. And then you jump down to chapter 4 and verse 1. Moses answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me. He says, okay, well, I guess you solved the first two problems, but they're not going to believe thee. They're not going to listen to me. They will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And God answers that. And you drop down to verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm not a very good speaker. And God answers that. And then in verse 13, he's kind of running out of excuses. And you know what he says? Lord, just send somebody else. That's what he says. Isn't that interesting? For Moses, who's going to lead the people out of Egypt, out of bondage, and then lead them during the wandering in the wilderness, he just wants them to send somebody. This is hard. I don't want to do this. I think that's often our reaction to God's mission. And when you're part of a congregation, it's easy to not serve sometimes. It's easy to not give. It's easy to not sing. It's easy to not evangelize. Just send somebody else. And somebody probably will step in to those gaps. But each of us cannot just be listed on the rolls. You can't just be on the membership roll and think, well, I'm on the rolls. I'm on the min-. you know. They know whenever there's an email sent, I'm I get the email. Whenever there's a message, I get that. Whenever the doors are opened, I'm there. But is your name written in the book of life? It's not on the membership roll at the church. It's is your name written in the book of life? Are you doing the work that God would have us to do? It's easy to make uh, excuses, and I want to talk about this. This is really touching to me. And every time I practice this, I I break down a little bit. I'm going to try to keep it together right here. But to me, it's very touching. Uh, There's there's a restaurant in Japan, and it's the the restaurant of mistaken orders. I love this this, uh, illustration. This, This guy noticed that people who had dementia, who were developing dementia, that they were kind of pushed out of society. They'd lose their jobs, uh, they'd lose interaction with people, uh, and, and they felt useless, and they kind of give in to, to the disease. And he wanted to fight against that, so he made a restaurant called the, the Restaurant of the Mistaken Order, Orders, where all the waiters and waitresses are, are struggling with dementia, and he gives them a job to do. And the idea as you go there is they're going to get your order wrong. But whatever it is, I'm a great chef, and I'm going to to cook you something good, even if you don't get what you ordered. And everybody's going to... You notice that everybody in those pictures are are smiling or helping. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a great concept? It kind of started a little movement in Japan when he did this. Uh, And it made people realize that they needed to include those people more. I just I just love that concept, and, and what's great about it is that that's what the church is like. The church is like this concept. Everybody has a role to play. There's something for everybody to do. You know, the excuses of I'm, I'm too old, I'm too sick, you know, too sick. 
I was thinking about this. When Don Blackwell went into the hospital uh, from his accident, if those of you know, he was, he was in a four-wheeler accident. He was paralyzed, and he was fighting for his life for a while there, and he was in the hospital in Atlanta. Uh, we went and visited him, and he got so many cards while he was in the hospital. You know who else? Kenny Rogers was in the hospital with him. Kenny Rogers didn't have nearly as many cards as Don Blackwell did. And thousands of cards poured in to Don, and he had them all over his room. Even though he was hurt and fighting for his life, the role that he played in that is that all the doctors, nurses, visitors, everybody saw the love of the church in that. There's a role for everyone to play, no matter what your stage or condition in life is. And there's no excuse that you can give. You think about this. God knows what you've been through, what you're going through, and what you're going to go through. Whatever it is that's happening to you, that you're struggling with right now, and there could be terrible things that you're struggling with, God knows that. You know, and it's not a surprise. You think God standing up in heaven, something happens to you, and he's scratching his head, and he says, man, I didn't see that coming. Does that sound like the God that you serve? No. God knows. And God's there with you, and he may be preparing you for something else. But I love the words of Zephaniah, and we'll close with this. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I love those verses. How encouraging it is. We don't have a God who's far removed from us. He sent his son down as God on earth to be with us, to live like us, to be tempted like us, and to die for us. It's a beautiful thing. We've got to stand and, let, and say, Lord, send me. This lesson, I hope you take it to heart. And we know that we've got to fulfill the mission of God. But if you've never obeyed the gospel, we would encourage you to do that. If you have, but you are not fulfilling the mission that God would have you, or you're struggling with something else, God knows. And if you make it known to us, we will encourage you and pray for you and be with you and help you through it as God's people. We're together in this. Come as we stand and as we sing.